My name is William Corliss and this is the Workplace Podcast. Brought to you in association with Yellowwood, providers of executive coaching, corporate training and facilitation. Your external learning and development partner. Each week we focus on a different aspect of the workplace. We hear from guest speakers who will be subject matter experts, who I believe are incredibly talented at what they do. These experts will give you a different perspective and insight to work life, with the aim of empowering you to take a different path to success in all aspects of work life. These perspectives will include career and personal success, leadership, high performance teams, and creating a better work life culture in your organization. Yellowwood, take a different path to success with your career, team, and organization. Welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Our topic today is making your voice heard. How to own your space, access your inner power and become influential. Our guest today is Professor Constant Locke. She joined the London School of Economics in 2008 where she teaches leadership, organization behavior, negotiation and decision making. Constant has over 30 years experience as an educator, coach and consultant working in Europe Asia-Pacific, North America and Australia. Prior to entering academia, she served as a regional training and development manager for the Boston Consulting Group, where she was responsible for the learning and development of consulting staff in 10 offices across Asia-Pacific. Constant holds a PhD and a Master's in Business Administration for Organization Behaviour from the University of California, Berkeley, and a BA in Sociology from Harvard University, where she graduated with honours. Her new book, Making Your Voice Heard, uses the research on power and influence to help people speak up to those who have more power than they do. Hansen, you are very welcome to the Workplace Podcast and apologies for those little errors I was making. <laughs> Hi, William. Thank you for inviting me. So I think it's, uh, it's wonderful to have you here. I have such wonderful memories of the London School of Economics and that's how I came across your book uh, through our mutual friend, uh, Dr. Rashbal uh, Densek Alan, And she mentioned your book was really good and I have to say it is Excellent. So I'm really, uh, I'm really looking forward to that. And I think um, the London School of Economics is such a great learning environment there. I studied organization behavior there. So again, I know you, you teach on that as well. And my thoughts, I have to say, when I was reading the book is such a concise read. So I deliver on many of the same topics like presentation skills, executive presence, body language, personality type, emotional intelligence, influence, persuasion, culture intelligence. It is all there. You have managed to squeeze this in and not just have you only done that, but you provide tips and tools. And it's a great mix of storytelling and psychology and theory and research. I would safely say this should be compulsory reading for all MBA (laughs) programs and graduate programs. So uh, that's my start. Okay. <laughs> Thank and for you. Me, then, you are most welcome. It is a, f- a fabulous read. And I was showing off to Conson earlier on with all my book notes and highlighting and all that. I've definitely done my homework uh, on this. And then we go back to the topic there of how holding your, how to own your own space, accessing your inner power uh, and becoming influential, influential. So, 
why does that matter? Why does influencing upwards matter then? So influencing upwards is something I teach on every leadership course that I teach, because I think it's something we don't pay enough attention to. When we think of leadership, we often think of leaders as influencing downward, you know, trying to get their team to do things. And I mean, come on, you're the boss. How hard is it going to be to make your team do what you want them to do? I mean, obviously you want to engage them and all that stuff, but, but really what's challenging, and this is, this is because I worked for 16 years before I came into academia. What's challenging in everyday life is influencing upward. It's like you're running a team, but your boss is telling you to give that team more work, or your boss is pressuring you to do something else. Or, and so you need to pay attention to that. You, you can't just, the worst team leaders I've seen are the ones where their boss says, okay, I've got more work for your team to do. And they say, oh, okay. The best team leaders I've seen are the ones who go, wait, hold on. We're working on this right now. If you want us to do that as well, we need to reprioritize. And that's influencing upward. That's basically, you know, and and those team leaders are the ones who have the team members who are productive, who are happy, who are engaged, who are not burnt out. Um, and so I think we don't pay enough attention to this idea of influencing upward. And all of us have to do it. Even if you're the CEO, you need to influence the board of directors or the shareholders. Yeah, and I think that's a, a great uh, point that you make, that is, it is there's a certain responsibility in everybody. So some people might frame that as, as personal leadership then. Would that be true? Yeah, you, you could say it's, it's personal leadership. I, see, I like to think of it as that is part of the role of the leader. Yeah. And in fact, um, Gary Uckel, who's a, a leadership, a well-known leadership researcher, says that there, there are four types of behaviors that leaders should engage in. So one is focused on the task, you know, where you're delegating and figuring out what needs to happen. The other is focused on the people, um, like connecting with people, coaching, et cetera. The third one is focused on change. So thinking about what needs to change and how do I manage change? But the fourth one is what he calls external. And mm. that's upward influence. So it's it's sometimes called boundary spanning because as a leader, we often think of our domain as our team or our organization or something. But the external behavior, the boundary spanning behavior is you looking beyond your team, beyond your organization and and connecting with or trying to influence those external forces. And I think that's we need to think of it as formally part of the leadership role because that will is what's going to make you a more effective leader. And that's often that I would uh, say in my own words, if it's okay to use that, is, is a lot of managers tend to be in that operator mode where we need to be in strategic mode. And I think that's what you're trying to get at there is to say, well, how does this meet with the strategic vision and how yes. what are the enablers there? What are the barriers there? Yes. to enabling that vision. Would, would I be correct in my assumption there? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you think of it as one of four different types of lead, you know, behaviors that leaders need to engage in, then you're constantly saying to yourself, okay, am I spending enough time focusing on the external or engaging with the external? And yes, you can call it strategic, but I think sometimes we think of strategic as, oh, I set the strategy at the beginning of the year and then I'm done. But yeah. really, you need to think of it as an ongoing set of behaviors where you're constantly engaging with the external. 
Yeah, I really like that perspective on it. That's uh, really useful. And then in terms of that, like what are the different ways then that, you know, influencing upwards or owning the space could look like? So you talked about behaviors then, what might they look like? Well, there's, when I think of influencing upward, there, there are essentially two elements to it. There's the internal and the external. So the internal is having the confidence to do that. It's overcoming things like imposter syndrome. It's um, having the reputation that you've built up over time where people respect you and they, they feel that there's something worth listening to. The external is more what you would get through presentation skills training where it's how do you stand, how do you dress, how do you, um, you know, making eye contact, um, what tactics can you use in the moment to get people to listen to you? And I think it's a combination of both. And what you use, the tools that you use will depend on the person that you're dealing with and what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, and I think that's what's really helpful in the book. You provide so many tools and tips around that in terms of those tactics or in terms of getting that credibility or status or social power, you know, or social capital, if you want to call it that, is how can you build your credibility through that? Uh, which reminds me is, is like during the pandemic, then people may have, you know, let that slip a little bit, maybe turning up to meetings, for example, and I've seen this in soccer jerseys or something like that, where you just kind of go, oh, this is not a mm-hmm. good look. You know, sometimes we get in our own way a little bit, don't we, in terms of, of those those external factors as well as the internal factors, which we'll go into in a moment. So we just talk about those external factors there. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, I mean, I definitely noticed that. I, I was holding meetings over Zoom with colleagues and they're sitting there in the sweatshirt and I'm thinking, you know, I'm I'm taking the time to dress professionally. It would be nice if you did as well. Um, there, there's actually a bit of research that um, that argues, and I don't write about this in the book because I found out about it afterwards, that argues for why we should dress more formally, even if we're working from home. Mm. And it's called enclosed cognition. And it's this piece of research where they found, they put people in um, lab coats and they had them do a, a cognitive test that requires really focused attention. And so half the people randomly were chosen to wear lab coats and the other half were not. The people who wore lab coats did better, significantly better than the people who didn't, because there was something about the way you dress that makes you focus a bit more. And so I think it's really important, even though we're working from home and I'm at fault as well. I, I have found myself dressing more casually than I normally do. But every once in a while, I just I remind myself, okay, wait, I am going to work, even though it's in my house, and I need yeah. to dress appropriately. And it really does affect the way we think and the way we act. I'm definitely going to check that out. Enclosed cognition, because that's something that I, for myself, I didn't let slip. If I'm honest, and people are going to go, why are you wearing a sports jacket? Uh, and I'm yeah. like, well, for me, it's allowing me to have that confidence. You know, that I don't go, I'm in my yep. professional hat now and, you know, I'm playing a certain role, you know, and for me it was, I had that boundary as well when I, it's kind of funny when I take off that jacket or when I take off the shirt, then I put on a t-shirt because I'm working from home, then it, it's like a, a signal to my 
brain to say, okay, time to switch off now. Exactly. Um, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's yeah. wonderful. Thank you uh, for doing that. What I really liked about your, your book then was it goes into all the different facets that I talked about there. And we talked about personality type. And again, in terms of personality type, we, we, you know, we talk about introversion and extroversion and the extroversion type people are the people that we commonly would hear and talking over people that might hog the space. Or right? so we'll talk about mm-hmm. that later on. But then you might have, you know, that person who might be a reluctant engineer, for example, that will go, might be unwilling to say this and well, what's the point? They don't have that energy. They tend to be a bit more reflective. Can you tell me a little bit more about that type of personality mm. and what, what advice you might give them? So I am an introvert and I used to be painfully shy when I was younger, like painfully shy. I remember being a teenager. I was probably about 15. I was on holiday with my parents and my mother said to we were in the hotel. She said, go down to the front desk and ask them for a newspaper. And I freaked out. I was like, I can't. What do you mean? You want me to talk to a stranger? You want me to ask a stranger for something? And I was like shaking. Um, and she asked me to do it because I was the oldest. So I still remember that because I remember how how scared I was to do that. And now I'm lecturing to rooms of 300 students and it doesn't phase me. I still get nervous. Mm. but I can do it. And I think one of the main things is I have something to say now. It's not, so I don't believe in influence for the sake of influence. I don't believe in like trying to dominate other people and showing I'm, I'm louder than you. I'm more powerful than you. I'm more important than you. That's what is the point of that? There's no point. But if you have something to say that is helpful for others You know, I really care about what I'm teaching. And if I focus on helping my students learn and be better leaders, that gets me beyond my nervousness. That gets me, you know, I'm no longer thinking about how do I look? How do I sound? I'm really thinking about, are they learning this? You know, this will really help them. And so what I would say to the introverted engineer is, focus on your goal. What is it that you're trying to do? Are you trying to convince someone that this is the best way to to make the product because you think they're going to make a mistake otherwise? That's what you should be focusing on. That's the important thing. And don't worry so much about how you come across or how you sound. You know, use the tools in the book to help you achieve that goal. If you don't have anything to say, don't say it. It's fine. Yeah, because there is a lot of energy like to be especially online now is you're nearly fighting for that space so again as if for someone with more uh, preference for introversion then that even fighting for that space to get in is draining in terms of their energy mm-hmm. wouldn't that be right yes absolutely so i think you have to pick your fights and mm. you have to you have to focus on what's really important from your perspective, you know, what is really important. Um, Because yeah, I mean, everything these days is so draining. I've just found myself not having the patience or the energy that I normally do just because of what we've been through recently. Yeah. And, and again, I was in a leadership uh, session there and one person said, you know, the reason I, I don't speak up is well, what's the point? And I really, to be honest, I was kind of taken aback 
you know, yeah. now obviously I, we, we, we did a, the group coaching around that, but what are your thoughts on that? That is, so there, there's a lot of research on something called employee voice. Mm. And they found um, there are two main reasons why employees don't speak up. One of them is futility. They, you know, exactly what that person was saying. What's the point? I don't think anything's going to happen. Um, and oh, I'm trying to remember what was the second one. I think the second one was lack of confidence. Yeah. But but the futility one, I think, is a really big one because I've been in that position. I've looked at my leaders, you know, the leaders in the organization and thought, should I bother saying anything? Because they're just, they're not going to listen. They're not going to do anything. And so I think, so this is where I think the concept of the circle of concern and the circle of influence becomes really important. And it's something mm -hmm. I try to remind myself of all the time because it helps me to not become too despairing. So we have a very large circle of concern, which are all the things that we are worried about, frustrated about, you know, the way the company is being run, the way the country is being run, the pandemic, but we can't necessarily do anything about them. If we stay focused only on that, we become very frustrated and demotivated. We have a much smaller circle of influence and the circle of influence are the things that you can actually do something about. So for example, when I first started at LSE, I was quite, quite frustrated about the fact that um, if, because we were doing handwritten exams at the time. Yeah. If a student is ill and they miss an exam, they have to wait a whole year until that exam is, is being offered again in order to sit it. And I was like, wait, but, but they were ill and why, why can't they reset the exam? I mean, we've changed our policies now. Yeah. But so I couldn't change the policy as a junior academic. What I could do was on the courses that I was running, I could make sure I didn't have exams, that instead I had essays. Mm. Um, and so this is, this is what I mean by, and it, in the book, I encourage people to do this exercise where you have two columns on a piece of paper. So one column are the things that are top of mind that you're really concerned about. And the second column are the actions that you can take for each of those concerns. And sometimes the action, you know, like for the exam thing, the action was simply for my course, I can make sure I'm not offering an exam. Um, but sometimes the action, you know, if it's something my boss has done that really annoys me, is my boss going to listen to me? Maybe not. Okay, well then stop being annoyed by it. Like the, the only thing I can do is change my own attitude, pay attention to something else, focus yeah. on something else. Yeah, and I think that's really uh, helpful there. And I think... You spotted something there in terms of that futility then is that is that's that's a signal of something greater then really isn't it because mm -hmm. that's more of a reflection of the leader rather than a reflection of you you yes. know and you're just you're just responding to a behavior that you're seeing so what's the point? yes but i would also say if you feel futility you should question like you should say am i assuming too much have i have i actually tried because there was one time so when I worked um, for the Boston Consulting Group, I had I worked in an office where the head of the office was, um, people were quite scared of him and nobody gave him feedback. But I saw him run a staff meeting and I thought, you know, he could have done that better. He was trying to deliver a really important message and he could have done it better. And I was the training manager. I was teaching presentation skills, communication skills. So yeah. I thought I should give him feedback. 
And and then I thought, wait a minute, why why does nobody give him feedback? They're scared of him. Should should I be scared as well, or should I? Mm. But I pushed myself and I gave him feedback, and he was open to it, and he was fine. So I would say, if you feel futility, first figure out is this based on actual data? Have I actually tried? If you have tried and it is actually futile, then okay, change your attitude, focus on something else, focus on what you can do. So we have a, an unwilling contributor, okay? And if this is something that we notice in our own teams, there, you know, what is it like? Number one is how do we better understand that person that's an unwilling contributor? And again, what can we do to mm. support that person? So, first of all, what's the mindset of someone that's an unwilling contributor? So, someone who doesn't want to contribute to the team or what the team is doing you need to get to know them individually because everyone is going to have a different reason. It might be that things are happening at home that are overwhelming for them and they just don't have the bandwidth to really focus on work. It might be they don't get along with their teammates. It might be that you've done something that you didn't even realize that they interpreted as shutting down the conversation. So you need to actually sit down with that person individually and be open-minded and be curious and find out what's actually going on. Yeah, so, and it goes back to that assumptions piece you were talking about there, is really you have to test your assumptions, but then mm-hmm. you need to explore that, you know, with that person individually to say, listen, I, I noticed that, you know, um, we didn't hear your voice at the meeting there, just checking in, what's okay? Yep. What would work for you then to, contribute again you know it's about giving that feedback isn't it exactly exactly and sometimes sometimes if people so one thing about introverts and I know this being an introvert is we need time to think about things so if something new has come up in a meeting and everyone's talking about it as an introvert I need to actually go back to my desk in silence and and think about what just came up before I have a reaction. When there's so much noise happening around me and everyone else is talking, I can't actually come up with something right there, right then and there. And so I think understanding those different ways of of interacting with the world, understanding that some people need a bit more time to sit in silence and think about it, just give them another chance. You know, say, um, after the meeting, we'll have a chance for people to submit more comments in writing. And you might end up getting a contribution from that person that you thought wasn't contributing in the meeting. And I think another factor that's really important for us to mention is sometimes the size of the amount of team members in the meeting can have an impact as well. Mm-hmm. So I kind of find like, you know, like if you're facilitating, I like I think my ideal number is twelve, right? And that's fair enough because mm-hmm. everyone's taking turns and they have time to reflect, and the facilitator's doing a a good bit of the work as well, right? Whereas if you're in a team meeting, you know four or five can be plenty. Mm-hmm. You know sometimes it's that extra person at six then just doesn't get the opportunity. So yep. I think there is. What are your thoughts on that? What's your experiences? I have heard that the ideal size for a team and this is mostly for small group work when we're teaching is about five yeah you know probably plus or minus one um 
So around four to six would, would be the ideal. Um, so yeah, if, if it's much bigger than that, then it does become very difficult. And, and also the personalities matter. Like if there's someone on the team who's very vocal and speaking up all the time, the quiet person is going to feel even more intimidated. So you just, you need to have a good facilitator. You need to have someone who's paying attention and can make sure everyone has a turn. And, and that will bring us to our, our, our next pieces there. We'll, we'll get, get to it in, in a second there. But again, we talk about the different personalities in the room, but then gender is mm-hmm. something that we need to, I suppose, become more aware of in terms of the differences then. So can you, what, what, what difference does gender make then? So gender makes a difference because we have these gender stereotypes. We have these expectations that are very much built into our culture. And and this is every culture that we're talking about because essentially every culture in the world is patriarchal. And I don't say that as a negative thing. It's the definition of patriarchal is um, men hold most of the positions of power in society. And um, so what ends up happening is our expectation of men is something called agentic, meaning the man is the agent, the one who's in charge, the one who makes things happen. Our expectation of women is something called communal, where the woman is expected to care about the community, to be kind and warm and sympathetic. The the problem happens when women are in leadership positions where leaders are expected to be agentic. Because our definition of leadership, being in a patriarchal society, our definition of leadership is very much male. And so it's very much as a leader, you need to take charge. But a woman taking charge, it's like, wait a minute, but she's a woman. She's supposed to be nice. She's supposed to be warm and caring. Why is she pushing me? Why is she criticizing me? And so that's where that conflict happens. And so women have to walk that fine line where you have to be both agentic and communal in kind of, you know, equal parts. Otherwise, if you're too agentic, people say, well, she's really difficult. You know, she's, she's great at what she does, but she's really difficult to work with. Mm. Or if you're too communal, then it's like, yeah, well, you can't really take her seriously as a leader. That, like it's, obviously, it's very unfair. I'm just, from a man's point of view, I'm like, you know, Obviously, it's a lot of subconscious stuff going on for men. You know, there the relationship with with the females in their life, mothers and you know spouses and partners and all and sisters and all that type of stuff and friends. And but then this is an extra layer that women have to consider. Like it's an unfair expectation mm. there. So what's important then for men? How do we flex in terms of our approach here? So what what advice would you give to me, for example? Um, well. So one thing to keep in mind is that we've all grown up in the same culture. Women are just as biased as men. Yeah. So, and sometimes more because they're less, they're less conscious of it. Hmm. I think what men, the way men can help the situation is if men are in a position of power or if they're in a meeting where someone has just interrupted that woman the third time, it really helps if a man notices and speaks up and says, wait, I I really want to hear what Susan has to say. Can we let her finish? Mm -hmm. And then she's not the bad guy. 
You know, like if another woman spoke up on her behalf, then it's like, oh, the women, uh, you know. Yeah. Um, and so that I think can really help if the men are the allies and can kind of pay attention yeah. to what's happening. Yeah. And it's that he for she uh, approach yep. uh, then. And I think that's a really good way to demonstrate executive presence as well. It's about not just take owning the space, but it's about making the space then for someone else. And Thanks. that's where you might say your peer or whatever to say. I'm I, and this could be for the introversion person as well, is to say, listen, I'd like to hear from, or I've noticed you've interrupted that person a few times. I think there's a certain element, because I've seen it before done really well, where some people have called someone on their behavior mm-hmm. uh, there, which is whether it be conscious or unconscious behavior. I think it, it does need to be called, but I think it, it, it's, you have to agree that in advance in terms of your meeting rules yes. would that be... That would be fair yes. enough, otherwise you've conflict all over the place, you know. That's right. It it really helps if you if whoever's facilitating the meeting is clear on the rules that we don't interrupt each other, you know. But also if these things happen and you're calling someone out on their behavior, it helps to call it out in a nice way, like not a judgmental way, because sometimes mm. people don't even know that they're doing that. Yeah. So just in a pleasant way, hey, by the way, I'd really like to hear what Susan has to say. Um, can we let her finish? You know, so I'm not judging you. I'm not getting angry at you. I'm just bringing it to your attention. And then, you know, the person might say, oh, sorry, I didn't realize. And there's another thing, and it's wonderful, you know, because you're, you're quoting some brilliant books that we've both read. So I'm going to, you know, you're talking about <laughs> Deborah Tannen there. I see you laughing there. Um, and uh, that book by Deborah Tannen, then you were talking about, you know, how women need to stop apologizing. Mm-hmm. They can tell me a little bit more. Oh, why is that? And how, yeah. in what situations do women start doing that? Now, I, I have a habit of doing that myself. So <laughs> I'm curious yes. from a personal perspective. So this is when I talk about Deborah Tannen's work. I mean, she's she's an anthropologist who studies the way people communicate. And so she analyzes all these transcripts of communication. And she's found that men and women communicate differently. And this is not surprising because in our cultures, we tend to have a male subculture and a female subculture. You know, boys and girls are socialized separately. Um, I have two teenage daughters and they did not interact with boys for until they were teenagers basically. So you learn different ways of communicating. And so that's not surprising. Um, And what Deborah Tannen found was essentially men learn to communicate in a very agentic way. You're, you're, You're competing. You're showing that you're better than someone else. And women tend to compute in a very, communicate in a very communal way where you take turns and you're nice. And, and the apologies thing. So this, her research was in North America. Yeah. I moved here to the UK 13 years ago and I realized, you know what? The men in the UK apologize as well. So there is a cultural thing happening yeah. here where in the UK, just everybody apologizes a lot. Yeah. And Ireland, but, we're the same as well. We're, you know, and I always thought it was Catholic guilt thing, but I, I don't know what it is. Uh, there, It's obviously part of Irish and UK culture. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Everyone's always saying sorry all the time even when it's not your fault. And it's like, you don't need to say sorry. But the thing about saying sorry is that it, it's a very powerful word. 
which is why when you try to get little kids to say sorry, they don't because they know how powerful it is. By saying sorry, you're essentially lowering your status a little bit. And so it's a very powerful word if you've actually offended someone. If you've actually done something wrong and you say, oh, sorry. Yeah. It lowers your status and they go, oh, okay. You know, it helps make things better. But if you don't, like, if you're saying sorry when actually what you want to say is excuse me, then you're kind of lowering your status for no reason. So just say what you actually mean. Say excuse me. Yeah, and it is habit uh, as well as something when I was... Uh, someone pointed out to me when I was 23 and it must have taken me three or four years to get used to it and obviously I've I've knocked that one on the head yeah I, I think it's really important as well because it does diminish you and I think it does it it affects your self-esteem on your confidence as well and we're going to go into that then because you talked about then you know in your article in ink.com which is wonderful by the way uh, uh, about three ways to beat imposter syndrome so i'd like to discuss more about what imposter syndrome is uh, there and i've read a lot about this i think it's such a fascinating uh, topic so what is for our listeners what is imposter syndrome imposter syndrome is when you feel you don't deserve something that you've achieved So the original study was done on women in higher education. So women in academia who had their PhDs and they were working as professors um, or faculty members, and they felt like they were imposters, like it was luck or it was some kind of fluke that they had achieved that because they were surrounded by men. And it's like, well, I don't belong here. It It was kind of that feeling. Now, since then, there have been studies that show men can also feel imposter syndrome. Um... You can also get imposter syndrome, for example, if you're a, um, I have a colleague who's working class, but working in academia, you know, that, you know, you kind of feel like, well, I I don't see anyone who's like me, so I I don't belong here. And so imposter syndrome is just that feeling like, I don't belong here, but it's, it's more than that. It's like, I don't deserve to be here. And it's, you get a lot with people who go into new roles or I, I, you know, I've worked a lot with CEOs. Uh, that are really confident then they suddenly get the CEO role and then they go oh and it, it's a bit like they're stretched beyond what they think they're capable of isn't it it's and it, I think it's that they feel stretched and yeah. it's belief then is oh can I actually do this now that I have it yeah yeah exactly and but imposter syndrome is even more than that so it's actually um So it was studied by psychiatrists. And so if you have like full-blown imposter syndrome, it's more than just feeling like, oh, can I do this? It's like, I, they made a mistake. They made a mistake. They shouldn't have promoted me. They shouldn't have hired me. I'm in the wrong place. And they're going to discover tomorrow that I'm a complete fake and fire me. You're waiting for that tap on the shoulder. Exactly. Found you out. Yeah. So it's, it's much more extreme than just a little bit of um, lack of confidence. It's really, it affects people in that um, they then don't engage with the organization as much as they could because they're afraid of being found out. Like they don't join the committees or they don't um, do more than do any extra. They just do kind of the minimum. Cause like, I don't want anyone to find out. 
Yeah, and they go into these self-protection mechanisms or behaviors mm -hmm. then, and they can be quite unhelpful as yes. well in terms of lack of contributing or whatever, or yep. conflict or minding their own patch or whatever. Yeah. And there. So then in your article, then you give us three ways to overcome that. So what are those three ways? Well, so one of them is I'm trying to remember what I wrote in the article, actually. <laughs> I, can, I can bring it up right here if you wish. Yeah, cool. I, 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 I have it here. I'll give you uh, one is to change the undermining thoughts in your head. Oh, yes. This is the voice in your head is um is essentially one of the one of those huge barriers that we are not aware of um and i think these days working from home especially if you live alone the voice in your head becomes even louder because there's nobody else's voice around you but the voice in your head can come from like i used to have a voice in my head that was from my mother yeah. basically saying um, you're not doing enough. You're not doing enough work. Why, why are you so lazy? You know, and, but I didn't, I wasn't conscious of it. It was just kind of this tape running in the background. And I didn't understand why I was always overworking myself and always exhausted until I finally became conscious of that voice in my head. And once you become conscious of it, then you can change it. And so that's one strategy for imposter syndrome. Once you're conscious of the fact that there's this voice in your head, you know, try to listen to it. What is it saying? Is it saying that you're terrible at this or you don't deserve, you know, or they hired you as a mistake? You know, once you know what it's saying, then you can change the script. And changing the script requires more than just changing the words. It requires changing the feeling because the feeling of a voice in your head saying, you don't deserve to be here. They made a mistake is like this feeling of fear. If instead you focus on something that you are able to achieve, so maybe I'm the first woman in this role. Okay, I can be a role model for other women. So that's something positive. I'm gonna focus on that. And I'm going to focus on being a role model for other women. And now the fear changes to maybe determination. So you're changing the, the script in your head, that voice in your head, and you're changing the emotion. I would even, if you really struggle with it, I would write it down, write down that new message, put it up on your wall and just keep reminding yourself of it. I think that's wonderful advice to our, our listeners. And it really is that life script can be so powerful as well. And I like that reframe that you did to say, listen, I'm a role model or a trailblazer and here's mm -hmm. the legacy that I'm going to leave behind, which is which is really good, you know, and that's where, you know, you're mentioning there is, is using your voice to your, it's full potential, isn't it? Is how do you, you know, how do you, uh, how do you do that? You know, so whether it's preparing mm -hmm. for a presentation or whatever. So can you tell me a little bit more about that? About so sorry. when you are expressing yourself, for example, you know, what, what, you know, that executive presence, what is it that we can do to be, you know, more influential? Mm. So there's all sorts of, okay, so there's two things. One is be aware of all the stuff you learn in presentation skills training. How are you dressing? How are you, um, if you're online, what is the lighting? Do you have a good headset that people can hear you? 
Do you have a nice, clear message to deliver? All of those things. Um, But the other part of it is, have you done the preparation beforehand? So have you built up the relationships with the other people who are going to be in the room? Mm. Have you... um, have you established connections with them so that they're willing to listen to you? Do they, do they know who you are? Have you shown that you're good at what you do so that they respect you? Um, and also, you know, do you, do you really care about yeah. what you're going to be saying? Because if you couldn't care less about what you're trying to do, then I I don't think you're going to have a very good time influencing other people. Like influence matters because it's something you really care about. Yeah. And again, it it, it does go back to that emotional intelligence then as well. And, And we talked about futility and personality type. And again, this is where sometimes negative emotions can really derail you so we talked about mm-hmm. imposter syndrome and that's self-protectionism so can you tell me a little bit more how, how can how can negative emotions derail you negative emotions can lead us into this downward spiral where we think oh there's no use or um or we get depressed or you know it's that futility that depression that um that feeling like the whole world is against me And I spent a lot of time in my youth, I think being a very painfully shy person, I let negative emotions take over. So I would sit in meetings where um, I would think of something I wanted to say, but then I would think, wait, should I say it now? Wait, no, but everyone else is still talking. Should I say it now? Should I say it now? And then I like my heart would be beating really fast and I'd be really nervous. And then I think, oh no, but but maybe, maybe, and I'd start thinking of all these like doomsday scenarios. I'll say it and I'll stumble. I'll say it and they'll laugh. I'll say it and they'll think I'm stupid. Um, and so those were my negative emotions taking over. Um, I have now learned that these negative emotions, they will always be part of me but I can become bigger than them. And I had a therapist friend who talked about it as being in charge of a kindergarten class. So all of these, there's in this class, there are all these little consons and there's the the little conson who is terrified of of people thinking she's stupid. And there's this other conson who's um, scared of making a fool of herself. You know, all these consons. And when they come up, you just, it, you're the kindergarten teacher and you just give that constant a hug and you say, it's okay, but you don't try to push them away. Yeah. And if you just basically think of yourself as this is a part of me, it's fine. I can deal with it, but I can move beyond it. And that's the important thing. Despite having these constants inside me that are terrified, I can still deliver my message because it's an important message that you know what i am definitely going to use that that is brilliant so it's really about embracing your inner child reassuring that inner child because we all have those emotions it's all part of our subconscious 
um, there. So that it, those gremlins that come up or those kindergarten children that I'm not going to mm-hmm. refer to, but what would I do with my old children? I'd reassure them. Yeah, you know, exactly. And don't bat it away or whatever, because I think that's the problem with sometimes is that we all do this, is that we suppress these things yes. and beat them down rather than embracing them, allow them to emerge and then put them to bed, if you want to call it, they're nice and relaxed. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, we need to understand that emotions are energy. So a negative emotion is just energy and it will it will show up and then it will go away. As long as you don't, if you're pushing against it, then it pushes back against you. If you just kind of let it happen, okay, and then it will dissipate eventually because it's just energy. But also keeping in mind that negative emotion can be a signal for something. If, if something angers you, there's a reason why. So you need to think about that. And, but if you think about it, you might say to yourself, oh, it's because of what happened to me when I was 10 years old. I always get angry at this thing. Okay, then you let it go. Yeah. But if you think about it and you go, oh, it's because there's something here that's not fair then you do something about it. So, you know, don't ignore the emotion, process it, let it happen, learn what you need to from it. And I'm going to quote your book, if that's okay, because (laughs) I think it's, uh, you're quite quite okay about that. So you quoted uh, Horatio Falcao, I hopefully Mm -hmm. pronounced his name okay. And he's an INSEAD business school professor. Mm -hmm. And the questions then in terms of of that uh, then, Oh, sorry, this is this is linked to um, uh, exercise and social power, but I think it, it kind of, it, it helps as well in terms of trusting yourself, mm-hmm. is do I have the ability? Am I being honest? Am I being reliable? Have I delivered what I promised? You know, intimacy, do I open up to them? Do I care for the other person? Mm-hmm. And I think that little bit there about those questions there, you know, in terms of transparency and honesty there, I, you know, are you being transparent and honest with yourself? So for me, I think that's really, that's the real value of this book is you're giving people the tools. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I thought, I thought those, when I saw those questions, I've seen lots of different ways of defining trust and some of them are just too vague and, and wishy-washy. But I, when I saw those questions, I thought these are, these are concrete, these are useful. And that's the way I see myself as a teacher is, I I have access to a lot of research and a lot of sources. I'm pulling out those specific tools that I think are concrete enough and useful enough for my students to actually apply. Yeah, because for me, I I think the question that helped me overcome imposter syndrome is, do I trust myself? Am I the best person to do this job? And when I look around in terms of my peers, I'm kind of going, well, actually, yes, I am. You know, yeah, and for me, I, I think it was a little bit about, you know, having that self-police or trust in myself to say, actually, you know what, I'm not a fraud, actually. Yeah. It might be the real deal if I'm honest with myself, you know, and I, I think there's something about praise and accepting compliments that this is the cultural intelligence piece. Again, do we do that easily? And I know in Ireland, mm-hmm. we mightn't do that easily. But remember at the start, I was praising you. And I could see you smiling uh, <laughs> there, but you, sh- you were shifting at the same time in your chair. And I was like, mm-hmm. were you uncomfortable with that? So I wasn't sure was mm-hmm. that introversion or was a culture intelligence or did I just 
compliment you like 10 times in a row because before recording, I don't know that I overdo it. So can you tell me a little bit more? Because I think cultural intelligence mm. then is really important for us. So especially yeah. around that praise piece. Well, this is, so interestingly, this is what Deborah Tannen found was the difference between men and women is, but I think there's a cultural difference as well mm. because she was only looking at North America. But what she found was um, in the more, so I'm going to say, I'm going to call it an agentic culture. So among the men who are more agentic, um, you don't praise. You don't praise because you're in competition with each other. You're trying to look better than each other. Among the women who are more communal, you do praise because you're trying to make the other person feel good. But then it's a little bit embarrassing to be, you, you know, there's, um, there's this instinct to kind of um, brush off the praise and say, oh, no, 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 you know, it's, it wasn't me or it wasn't all me. I had a lot of help. Um, and I think I see this as cultural because there are some cultures, you know, the phrase tall poppy syndrome. So yeah. there are some cultures where it's very much, you don't want to stand out from the crowd. So you don't want everyone praising you because that's going to make you stand out from the crowd. You just want to be an ordinary person along with everyone else. Um, and I, I don't think there is a right or wrong with any of this. I think what we need to be aware of are our own cultural tendencies. What are we comfortable with? What are we uncomfortable with and why? And the more we get to know ourselves, the better we can deal with all the different situations that we find ourselves in. Um, but one thing I do tell people when you're being praised, be gracious and accept it. Don't, don't deny it. Just, you know, say thank you. No matter how uncomfortable it might make you feel, just say thank you. Um, but also be aware that this is a cultural difference. So you might be uncomfortable with it because that's the culture that you grew up in. And I think that's important for us as well is, is this is part of feedback. Mm -hmm. So it's part of positive feedback, negative feedback, constructive yes. feedback, there's different types of feedback. And I think if you have low self-esteem, this is a way to rebuild your self-esteem, mm. you know, as well as they're, you've projected this image out to them. They're just reflecting back what they saw, you know, and a lot of people, I don't think give compliments unless they're genuine. Yes. Would you That's agree right. with that? That's right. I think, well, okay. There is a caveat to that. Please there do. are, um, if, if you are in a position of power, there will be people who compliment you to, um, to make you feel good, to, you know, to, Ingratiate. because they want something out of you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but we can usually tell. And I think if you're, so if you're going to compliment someone, don't make it a vague compliment like, oh, you did such a great job. I would actually point out a specific thing that they did. The way you answered that email was really clear and really effective. Yeah. That or is much more helpful for them than you did a great job because now they know what they did well, they can do it again. And this is where I'll take the opportunity to compliment this book in terms of its mix of tools and theory and stories and research. So if I'm honest, the book is written exactly like this podcast is being presented. So for our <laughs> listeners, 
it's a, it, you get what it says on the tin, that is for sure. Um, and for me, then we talked about that culture and intelligence and the role of our upbringing there, which brings us to organizational culture. And this cultural intelligence moving to organizational culture that the organization that we work in, then what's that role of trust and social power then in terms of influence then? So, you know, how might we diminish our trust with people? You know, how might we diminish our own social power and how can we increase that? I think if, if you're thinking in terms of organizational culture, you need to understand the culture. And a culture is essentially a set of norms, norms meaning rules. Um, they can be implicit or explicit. But if you have a set of rules, you know, a set of things where it's like we should do it this way or we shouldn't do it this way or this is the way we do things around here, that's a culture. You need to, when you join an organization, you need to be clear on what is the culture so that you can do things according to the culture. So for example, if you join an organization where um, you are expected to speak up in a meeting, like if you object to something, you're expected to say it in the meeting because once the meeting is over, everyone assumes that you agreed. And if you bring up your objection after the meeting is over, they're like, well, you were lying in the meeting then. We, you didn't say anything in the meeting. Why are you bringing it up now? So, you know, those are things that can vary from culture to culture. And if you don't understand those unwritten rules, you're not going to be effective in trying to influence. So I always, I mean, I've worked in a lot of different organizations. I usually give myself about three months to really understand the organization. And sometimes you need even longer than that. But so I don't try to change anything in those first three months, because I'm just learning. And then once I get a sense for how things are run and how things work, then, then I'll start thinking about how to change things. And your book then quotes work that I would often quote is with Bell, then by Raven and French in mm -hmm. terms of, you know, uh, power in organizations. So can you tell us a little bit about that for our listeners? Yeah. So there are different bases of power. So ways in which you can, sources of power. If you're the boss, like if you're, if you have more formal power in the hierarchy than the other people, then you have access to certain things like rewards and punishments. And, you know, that's not so interesting when we're talking about upward influence. For upward influence, what's really interesting are two bases of power. One is called expert, which is um, you are respected for being an expert in something. And the other one is called referent power, which is you are liked. People like working with you. And that could, it could be for various reasons. You know, maybe you're very dependable, maybe you're very cooperative, maybe you um, have a lot of integrity, whatever it is. So those two are the basis of power that you need to build when you are part of an organization. Expert power you can build by being really good at what you do. And if you want to build it with a specific person, if you help them solve a problem that they're working on, you can, you know, they will see you as an expert, like they, they will respect you. Uh, referent power, the liking part is really, it's about connecting with people, getting to know people, you know, those informal interactions, the, 
getting to know them outside of work or um, if you're if you're running a team, a really good way of doing this is I, I heard about this one team leader where the last five minutes of every team meeting, one person would um, share a photograph of something that's not related to work. And so they would take turns each team meeting. Now you're getting to know people as human beings and that increases that sense of liking. And so the more you have those bases of power, the expert power, you know, people respect you, people like you, the more influential you can be. So we're talking about being influential in the workplace and there is the role then of networking. So how do we network in organizations? So we'll say forget the pandemic was on, how would you do it before then? Like why is networking important? Why does it matter? Oh God, I hate networking. <laughs> I, I'm an introvert. I'm an introvert. Yeah. I don't want to network. Yeah. But being an introvert doesn't mean that I don't like people. What it means is I, I really like people. I like to get to know people, but in small groups. Yeah. You know, maybe no more than two or three people at a time. And so what I do is I will connect with someone, say, can we have a coffee or can we have lunch or something like that? And I mean, usually there's a reason for connecting with them. So maybe yeah. they've contacted me to ask me something or I need to contact them to ask. Um, and I, I think, well, I'd really like to get to know this person better. Or um, when I have a new teaching team at the beginning of the term, instead of just coordinating according to what we're going to be teaching, I say, let's have lunch together. Yeah. And so it's, it's, that just taking the extra time to really get to know people. And for me, I'm not one of those people who is, who um, focuses on networking. Like I know people who like make lists of people that they think that they should contact and try to make sure they contact a new person every week. I'm like, no, 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 I don't have time for that. But at least the people that I end up getting to know or connecting with. And the longer you're at an organization, the more people you're going to have to interact with. I take the time. I take the time to get to know them, to ask a few questions, to have a coffee. Um, and so that makes those few connections that I have deeper. So, you know, that, that's a different way of looking at networking. There's the other way of looking at it, which is many more connections, but they're quite shallow. Yeah, and, and that's the thing for me. It's it's uh, do you expand your net, you know, and do you work at it so that that network it does mm -hmm. take effort, but rather than going shallow, it's you're going for depth, you know. And I think that's yeah. spoken so true of a person who is has a preference for introversion that you do go for depth. Yeah. Whereas an extroversion, people will have that kind of oh my network is massive. Yeah. You know where you're like, listen, I will have a smaller network, but it'll be depth and quality to it. And here's another thing when I'm in coaching conversations then with people of uh, a preference for introversion then is they may not see the value of networking. So mm -hmm. What is the value of networking then for people, whether you're an introversion preference or extroversion? The value of networking is if you're, is if you're trying to achieve something. Now, if you're in a job where you really don't care, 
then, yeah. okay, you've got bigger problems. But if you're in a job where you really care about what the organization is doing and what y- you can achieve, then having that network really helps. Like, for example, I've been at the LSE for 13 years now. And recently, we had to... Um, we, <laughs> The students actually asked me for a social event. I felt so bad for them. They asked me for a social event once things started opening up in London um, in a lecture hall because they had never sat in an LSE lecture hall the whole year. These were master students, so they were only here for one year. And um, they were like, we've never sat in an LSE lecture hall. Could we have a social event that's a lecture? And I was like, oh my God, I've never had students ask me for a social event that's a lecture. But so I was happy to do that. And so I did the lecture for them and they wanted to have a photographer because they hadn't had a chance to have their official LSE photo in front of the red ball in one of our buildings. Um, but because the program team wasn't sure if they had money, they, I said, okay, fine, I will take it out of my research money. Now, this is not what you're supposed to be doing. Um, but I did it because I wanted to make sure the students had a good experience and they were really happy. I hired the photographer, paid for the photographer, et cetera. So later on, I'm submitting my expenses and I'm, I'm hoping to get reimbursed for this, which, you know, cause I had kind of broken the rules as to what I'm supposed to use my research money for. But because I have a network, because the person who is in charge of the expenses is someone that I've had coffee with that knows me and trusts me, it's fine. So you just never know, you never know. Um, but it's not about using people. It's about, it's about taking the time to get to know people so that they trust you. And when you ask for something, so this is influence, you know, you're asking for something. Yeah. Then they trust you and they go, yeah, Constance asking for it. So it must be a legitimate thing. It's fine, yeah. we'll help her. And that's really good because you know, a lot of people kind of see it as, oh, it's just for show or I hate when people do that. It's so false or or whatever. And oftentimes what I get it is, is from people, you know, say we get over that, that is, then they go, okay, I need to network. The next thing they say is, I don't know how to approach people. And if I do, I don't know what to say. Mm. So what advice might you give to, to people? So like whether you're a graduate or whether you're an engineer or you're, you know, mid-level manager, you know, this is a, a big obstacle for people. So what advice might you give people? I think the main thing is to have that attitude of curiosity, to be curious about the other person. So for me, I'm not going to approach someone out of the blue. There's going to be a reason why I'm interacting with that person. But I mean, the reason I knew the person who was approving my expenses was because she used to work at the front desk. And so I would, when I went to, because I needed to do something at the front desk, I would hang out a little bit. We would chat. And so to me, it's not about, you know, approaching someone out of the blue. It's when you have an interaction anyway, you know, I'm passing the front desk on my way to get something from the stationary cupboard. I will stop and have a little conversation. How are you doing? What did you do this weekend? You know, and and just really get to know the person. And that that's the way I think of networking. Yeah. So it's, it's, there's a bit of 
purpose or intent behind it and then you can see the value of it then but it's really about just getting to know people and trust people isn't it essentially exactly it's about realizing that these relationships matter so so now we're online and we're trying to own that space Mm -hmm. online it's very different to own a virtual space then so you know, in terms of that, like, how do we get the balance right? So if I'm an extroversion type person, I might be hogging the space. And then, you know, if I'm introversion in nature, I might be unwilling to fight for the space. So, mm-hmm. you know, how do we how do we manage for that? You know, if we want to own the space. So having spent a whole year, more than a year teaching online, I actually think the online space is better for introverts if it's facilitated properly. Mm. Whenever I'm facilitating a discussion online, I make sure people use the raise hand function. I don't let people shout out because I, it's awkward online anyway. You're going to interrupt someone else. You're, um, you don't have those signals that tell you someone's about to speak. So I always make people use the raise hand function. That really helps because then the introvert they don't have to jump in when it's, you know, when there's a silence, they just raise their hand and then you call on them and you can see the sequence in which people raise their hand. So you can be fair. There's also the chat function and introverts I've noticed. So this is not even introverts and extroverts. This is just first year undergrads. Normally when I give a lecture to the first year undergrads, which is more than 200 people in a room, nobody raises their hand. Nobody asks a question because they're, they're nervous. There's 200 of my classmates in the room. I'm not going to ask a question. But online, they will type something in the chat yeah. or they will answer a poll or they will um, you know, use the raise hand function. But really the chats and the polls are a great way to get people more involved and more engaged. So I would say being online, if you facilitate it well, you can really get more participation. Excellent, Dave. And I'd be a big believer uh, of that myself. Which brings me to one of my final questions before we we finish up uh, here. You'd be giving us some key takeaways, hopefully. But one last question I have then is, how do we achieve that status and power then virtually? Uh, do we network individually online? You know, what is it that we can do to be more influential, especially if we're working from home? Yeah, it's it's harder when you're working from home. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the advice depends on your situation. So if if you're in a situation where you are allowed to go into the office or you're partially at home and partially in the office, I would say make the effort to go into the office when you know other people are going to be there. Make yeah. the effort to meet people in person because it really does strengthen the connection by a huge amount. If you're not in that situation, if everyone is still working from home, then yeah, it, it would be a matter of reaching out, really reaching out to people. I, I've done this at the end of a meeting, um, I will either hang on. So I've done this in, in classes that I'm teaching. I say, okay, we're done. But then as people are dropping off, I stay 
because there might be one or two people who say, oh, wait, I've got one more question. And so I, I hang out and I connect with them. Or sometimes there's a meeting, the meeting is done, everyone's gone. And then I email someone and say, hey, did you want to follow up after that meeting? And then we get back online and, and chat. So you do have to make that effort to reach out. Really, thanks for that. And, and then there's, there's different ways that we can network or even present at a team meeting or something like that. So there is different ways uh, to do that. So uh, thank you for that advice. And this brings us to nearly where we're at, at the end. So for people then in terms Wait, of- before we reach the end, yeah. you know that ink.com article you were talking about? Yes. What were the other two things? The other two things, yeah. Is, I, is, is, is uh, well, I'll read all three again. Change yeah. the undermining thoughts inside your head. Yeah. Use your voice to f- its full potential. And finally then hone your cultural intelligence. Ah, okay. So we've talked about the cultural intelligence. Let me just make a point about the voice. Yes. Because this is something I don't think we pay enough attention to. So the voice is a really powerful instrument. But when we give presentations or when we try to convince someone of something, we pay attention to the words that we use. We pay attention to how we look, how we dress, our eye contact, all of those things we don't necessarily pay attention to what we're doing with our voice. Mm, Like the vocal qualities. The vocal qualities, the emphasis that we're using. Are we monotone? Are we pausing? Pauses are very powerful. Are we saying um, um, ah too much? So these are things that, and, and these are really easy things to practice for yourself. You can just use your phone and record like the first two minutes of your presentation, play it back and see how you did and just work on it. And it's really that weak language or those fillers that we do. So practice to pause or Mm -hmm. be comfortable with silence. When I edit my podcast, I'm like, Oh, (laughs) I should really improve. And sometimes (laughs) I'm very happy with my vocal qualities, you know, uh, as well. So I must admit that. So, in terms of key takeaways, then, what would the key takeaways for people if you wanted to own your own space, making your voice heard and to be more influential? How might they do that? Then? I would say two things. One thing for the internal, building your self-confidence is it's really Getting to know yourself, accept yourself, like yourself, and as you said earlier, trust yourself. So really spending time on that. And and I've spent a lot of time on that over the years, and that pays dividends. The other thing is in terms of the external, which is the, the interaction that you're having with the other person, ask questions. We don't, when we think of influence, we often think of delivering our own agenda. We're very focused on our own agenda. What, what is the message that I'm trying to get out there? But I have found that it can be far more effective if you start by asking what the other person's perspective is. And I'll give you an example. So as, as the um, program director for a couple of master's programs at LSE, I often get student reps 
complaining to me about a particular teacher. And then I have to go to the teacher and say, the students told me this, could you stop doing that? Could you do this instead? And when I do that, I get defensiveness, I get pushback. I get the teacher saying, that's not what happened. The students, um, What's much more effective is when I go in and I say, the students told me this, what's your perspective on the situation? And so I'm going in with an open mind, I'm going in asking a question, and once I listen to what they say to me, I might change my mind about the situation and what needs to be done. But so I think we need to change the way we think about influence. It's not a one-way street. It's really about being curious and open-minded and understanding the other person. And that's a link back to reference power then as well, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, there. Thank you for that. Are there any other key takeaways then for people? I think those are the main ones. I think you don't want to you don't want to be overwhelmed with things. Yeah. You really need to know yourself and think about what is what are those one or two things that I should be working on right now. And then once you get those under control, then you go to the next one or two things. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you very much for that. And if people were to contact then you constant how might they do so? I think they can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm I'm quite active on LinkedIn. I'm also active on Twitter well, because I kind of feel like I have to, but I prefer LinkedIn. And um, they can go to my website. There's lots of information about me on my website and more articles and videos, et cetera. And I'll have a, a link to that uh, website in the description of the podcast here. Can you just remind us of that, that website? What's the name yeah. of the website? It's consonlock.com. And Consen is C-O-N-N-S-O-N. Lock has an E at the end, <laughs> .com. Thank you very much for that. And we have a competition for our listeners here. So if you uh, email William at yellowwood.ie, I have a copy of the book to give away, which I will do a raffle. So for your entry, what I'd like people to do is tell us which college professor Professor Constant Locke is associated with. Okay, we've mentioned it multiple times, so we haven't caught it. You'll have to listen to the podcast again or just uh, press rewind. So, Constant, Professor Constant Locke, thank you so much for joining the Workplace Podcast today. It has been such a pleasure. Thank you, William. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it too. That's it for this episode of the Workplace Podcast. My special thanks to this week's guest for a wonderful discussion. If you want to get in contact with a podcast about a workplace topic or a particular challenge that you're facing, contact me via Twitter at Different Paths. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, William Corless, C-O-R-L-E-S-S, or go to my website, www.yellowwood.ie. Yellowwood, your external learning and development partner. Provider executive coaching, facilitation and training. Take a different path to success with your career, leadership, team and organization.